begin uh, reading. If you'd like to follow along in your Bible or on your device, there is a Bible in the Jericho Ridge app. You can download that and open that up. And uh, Ali's going to begin reading in Ruth chapter 1. Okay. In the days when the judges ruled in Israel, a severe famine came upon the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah left his home and went to live in the country of Moab, taking his wife and two sons with him. The man's name was Elimelech and his wife was Naomi. Their two sons were Marlon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in the land of Judah. And when they reached Moab, they settled there. Then Elimelech died and Naomi was left with her two sons. The two sons married Moabite women. One married a woman named Orpah and the other a woman named Ruth. But about 10 years later, both Marlon and Kilion died. This left Naomi alone without her two sons or her husband. Then Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had blessed his people in Judah by giving them good crops again. So Naomi and her daughters-in-law got ready to leave Moab to return to her homeland. With her two daughters-in-law, she set out from the place where she had been living, and they took the road that would lead them back to Judah. But on the way, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back to your mother's homes, and may the Lord reward you for your kindness to your husbands and to me. May the Lord bless you with the security of another marriage. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they all broke down and wept. No, they said, we want to go with you to your people. But Naomi replied, why should you go on with me? Can I still give birth to other sons who would grow up to be your husbands? No, my daughters, return to your parents' homes, for I am too old to marry again. And even if it were possible, and I were to get married tonight and bear sons, then what? Would you wait for them to grow up and refuse to marry someone else? No, of course not, my daughters. Things are far more bitter for me than for you because the Lord himself has raised his fist against me. And again they wept together and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung tightly to Naomi. Look, Naomi said to her, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her, to her gods. You should do the same. But Ruth replied, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said nothing more. So one day Ruth and the Moabite said to Naomi, Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me get a, go out into the harvest fields to pick up the stalks of grain left behind by anyone who was kind enough to let me do it. Naomi replied, all right, my daughter, go ahead. So Ruth went out to gather grain behind the harvesters, and as it happened, she found herself working in a field that belonged to Boaz, the relative of her father-in-law, Elimelech. While she was there, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you, he said. The Lord bless you, the harvesters replied. Then Boaz asked his foreman, who is that young woman over there? Who does she belong to? And the foreman replied, she's the young woman from Moab who came back with Naomi. She asked me this morning if she could gather grain behind the harvesters. She's been hard at work ever since, except for a few minutes rest in the shelter. 
Boaz went over and said to Ruth, Listen, my daughter, stay right here with us when you gather grain. Don't go to any other fields. Stay right behind the young women working in my field. See which part of the field they are harvesting and then follow them. I have warned the young men not to treat you roughly, and when you are thirsty, help yourself to the water they have drawn from the well. Well, Ruth fell at his feet and thanked him warmly. What have I done to deserve such kindness, she asked. I'm only a foreigner. Yes, I know, Boaz replied, but I also know about everything you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. I have heard how you left your father and mother and your own land to live here among complete strangers. May the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge, reward you fully for what you have done. Where did you gather all of this grain today? Naomi asked. Where did you work? May the Lord bless the one who helped you. So Ruth told her mother-in-law about the man in whose field she had worked. She said, the man I worked with today is named Boaz. May the Lord bless him, Naomi told her daughter-in-law. He is showing his kindness to us as well as to your dead husband. The man is one of our closest relatives, one of our family redeemers. So Ruth worked alongside the women in Boaz's field and gathered grain with them until the end of the barley har harvest. Then she continued working with them through the wheat harvest in early summer, and all the while she lived with her mother-in-law. So Boaz took Ruth into his home, and she became his wife. When he slept with her, the Lord enabled her to become pregnant, and she gave birth to a son. Then the women of the town said to Naomi, Praise the Lord, who has now provided a redeemer for your family. May this child be famous in Israel. May he restore your youth and care for you in your old age. For he is the son of your daughter-in-law who loves you and has been better to you than seven sons. This is the word of the Lord given to us in love and it's altogether true. I'm going to ask uh, Rebecca if she would uh, come up this morning. And uh, Meg and I first got to know uh, Rebecca and Andrew about 15 years ago or so when we were starting Jericho Ridge and they were church planting as well. And so we were part of a cohort group uh, together that would meet for encouragement and uh, our paths have uh, taken us in different directions. So what have you been up to for the last 14 years? You know, just a little <laughs> condensed history of your life. <laughs> 14 years, and you want to hear all about that in two, two, 30 seconds. Uh, that's right. My husband and I were church planting. I had finished at seminary, and we were uh, working with a church plants urban journey in the UBC area of Vancouver, uh, and I was working as a chaplain for the Mennonite Brethren there, fundraising my income for that, and we realized at some point that uh, one of us needed a type of job that would be able to fund the work that we were doing, and so I started at UBC Law School and uh, worked towards becoming a lawyer. Uh, both of us have made transitions into other careers, and so uh, my husband is now uh, RCMP here in Surrey, and, uh, and I've been working as a family lawyer and as a family mediator, uh, which means that I, for the most part, I'm helping couples uh, through separation and divorce, and I do that as a collaborative lawyer and as a mediator. So tell us a little bit about the difference in a strategy that a collaborative law takes as opposed to a more traditional approach. 
Sure, so I, I do also practice as a litigator, so sometimes uh, I'm in court, but uh, it's my personal belief and my firm's belief that uh, court should be a last option uh, for people that are working through separation. And so collaborative law, you may not have heard of it. Um, out here in the Valley, there's not as many collaborative family lawyers, but there's a, a strong community of them in Vancouver that do work out here as well. And essentially, uh, it's a more holistic approach in that we work with um, mental health uh, professionals as well as financial specialists um, and try to provide the family the support they need as they move through separation and divorce and uh, essentially the couple signs a contract and the lawyers sign a contract that says they won't take each other to court, uh, that they're going to work it through peaceably even though it still is very difficult and, and uh, but yet the lawyers are working together as a team and the focus is on uh, trying to help the family uh, have less harm uh, in the midst of what the reality of life at that time. Yeah. Well, I have an incredible uh, respect for you as both a professional and as a person, and so I'm excited that you're here to preach this morning. Can I pray for you as yes, we... Yes, absolutely. God, you are uh, gracious and good. Thank you for um, all of the gifts that you have given to Rebecca. We thank you for her family, uh, for their three kids, uh, we thank you for uh, the way in which you have continued to lead and guide her. We thank you for the gifts of leadership that you've given to her. We thank you uh, for all of the gifts of discernment and wisdom. And we pray, God, that uh, as she leads us through looking into your word this morning, that you would open our hearts, open our eyes, open our ears, that we would be those who respond in obedience to the invitation that you put in front of us. And so we ask this in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 Thank you so much for uh, having me here today. It's been a number of years uh, since my husband and I have seen Brad and Meg and uh, when we were in the church planting world with them. And I remember him uh, treating me as a female pastor and chaplain at the time with deep respect and camaraderie. And it was, it's wonderful to see that he's continuing to call out the gifts of both women and men uh, in this church and that, he, that the, this series has been planned uh, looking at eight women in the Bible who, although perhaps on the margins of the pages and the margins of their culture um, have much to say to each of us whether man woman or child uh, it's been quite some time since I've preached in a church. I lead worship in our local church in Vancouver, and now most of my preaching takes place in front of a judge. Uh, so I would be lower, and the judge is sitting up higher. So this is strange this year. I feel like I should come down here and kneel or something. Uh, so I'm speaking up towards you guys. But uh, So most of my preaching takes place in front of a judge in court as a family lawyer uh, or with two parents who are separating as a family mediator or occasionally with my teenage and young adult children uh, who still need a mom to preach at them occasionally. Uh, Andrew and I have three kids, uh, ages 20, 18, and 16, and our middle daughter, Faith, is here with us today. Uh, they really are my biggest pride and joy. Uh, for those of you who are in the throes of parenting, <laughs> I saw that happening, I remember it well. Uh, I had three, we had three kids um, within four years, so uh, it's, yes, I do recall it. <laughs> it's a vague memory at the moment, but um, just for, for those of you that are in the throes of that, um, you know, hang in there. Uh, I look at my kids now, and I, I marvel at who they are uh, 
They don't always make the decisions I would. Uh, they don't rise and call me blessed and walk the dog <laughs> without, uh, without being asked. Um, but I look at them and just see the spectacular humans that they are. I'm lucky to have uh, one of them here today as well as my husband. And I, I know I don't say this often enough, but I do appreciate having uh, honest-to-goodness fans in my life that, that came with me this morning. Um, If it's okay with you, I'm going to ask you to do a bit of talking back at me during this sermon. Um, So feel free to yell out answers when I ask questions. I'm a lawyer, so I know how to ask closed questions um, that are only going to require one or two word answers so no one can get too carried away. Uh, So here's the... Here's the first question for you. I'm glad. Hey, you guys, I'm on a roll a little bit. Jesse, was, Jesse said he'd laugh at my jokes if no one else did. So, <laughs> so far, we're, we're good. Um, so who was here two weeks ago for the first week of this series? All right, a few of you. Who remembers which woman of the Bible was learned from that week? Say it louder. Tamar. Tamar. All right. And so let's pretend we're all in law school for a moment. What was the ratio or the guiding principle from Tamar's life that applies to us. Um, So that's what you do in law school. You interpret legislation and you read case law. Uh, And you do that in order to learn the ratio or the the guiding principle that's taken from that judge's decision that you can use in your case or else distinguish your facts from it. Um, So anyone who loves theological work uh, would likely also love law school. (laughs) Kevin, that's maybe where you're headed next. (laughs) Um, So how about it? What did you learn from Tamar? Anyone? Okay, redeeming, God's redeeming work. Anyone else? Is that right, Brad? (laughs) Do you have a ratio, a guiding principle from her life? Put you on the spot for once, right? (laughs) All right, did you hear that? Say it louder. Wonderful. Um, what about last week? Which, who was here last week? All right. Uh, which woman of the Bible was featured? Rahab. All right. And what was the ratio or the guiding principle from her life? Faith saves. Okay. Anyone else? Risk. All right. Wonderful. All right, so today, thanks to our scripture readers, we've already entered into the life of Ruth. Here's another question for you. How, who knows how many of the 66 books in the Bible are named after women? Two, that's right. So which ones? Esther and Ruth, that's right. Now, who knows how many of the 66 books of the Bible are named after non-Israelites? So who they would call uh, Gentiles. How many books are named after non-Israelites? Take a wild guess. One. That's right. Well, who who would be the two? Hmm? Wasn't he Jewish? (laughs) 
<laughs> All right, we're gonna have a theological debate about that one. Well, from what I understand, there's only one, and, uh, but I could be wrong, it happens. Um, and that, that would be Ruth. Um, and that's actually truly remarkable. Um, to me, when we hear a little bit more about Ruth's culture, uh, this will be even more revealing of the fact that the Holy Spirit does not want us to miss out on hearing the voices of and learning from the example of people who are marginalized or who are in the margins of culture. Uh, before we dig into Ruth's story, I have a few more questions. These uh, can just be answered by raising your hand or in your mind, uh, think about this. How many of you have ever faced a difficult situation? All right, sounds like a ridiculous question. Since each one of us has faced some sort of conflict or tragedy that has been difficult, even if at different depths, although some are forced to learn of this reality much earlier in life than others, uh, to be human is to discover that life is full of difficulties, disappointments, and suffering. As Mother Teresa once said, suffering will come, trouble will come, that's part of life, a sign that you are alive. If you have no suffering and no trouble, the devil is taking it easy. It, taking it easy. Now, how many of you have ever, have ever experienced an act of kindness in the midst of a difficult situation? This might be a helping hand or a listening ear, a shoulder, a meal, a much-needed conversation, or even extravagant generosity right exactly when it was needed. Now let me ask you this last question. Can you think of a time when you stepped out in kindness towards others in the midst of your own crisis? Now that's tough. And that's one of the main virtues of the woman we'll be learning from today. Today we're looking at the life of Ruth. Next week you'll be looking at Naomi, her mother-in-law, so I'm going to try to keep our focus on Ruth herself. Uh, however, this is difficult to do because Ruth, what marks Ruth is her effect on other people, the risks and the sacrifices that she makes that lead others closer to God. Last week I was hiking with a small group of women from my church community and I felt guilty that I was hiking instead of preparing this sermon. Um, so I asked them what they thought of Ruth, what they had learned about her. One didn't know her story at all. Uh, another began to tell the story of Ruth, as you have just heard it, uh, and then said that Ruth's biggest virtue was her loyal obedience to her mother-in-law, even obeying her when, uh, when what she was told to do was questionable or even risque. Now, that's a part of the story we didn't read today. There was a chunk of chapter three that we missed because we would have been here all day if we read the entire book. Um, but you'll have to go home and read all four chapters yourself later. Uh, this is the main picture of Ruth that is often portrayed over the centuries. She is loyal and obedient and submissive, and because of this, she is rewarded with a tall, handsome bachelor, Boaz, <laughs> who saves the day and gives her a son who will then become the grandfather of King David in the line of Jesus himself. Now, I'm being a bit facetious, but how many of you have thought of Ruth that way or have been taught about Ruth in that way previously? I see a few people uh, nodding their heads. Well, sorry to disappoint, today's sermon, it will not resemble an episode of The Bachelor or The Bachelorette. And if you follow the example of Ruth, you are not automatically given a rose. Okay, Jesse, that was the one you're supposed to laugh at right there. <laughs> Thank you. 
I'm actually more of a Survivor fan myself. Um, and uh, <laughs> one of the reasons I love the game Survivor, even in its 38th season, anyone still watching Survivor? It's only me. Okay, if you're <laughs> timidly admitting it there. Um, is because, well, what happens? We get to witness people when they're put under the ultimate strain, right? Very little food, hardly any sleep, close quarters with strangers that probably smell bad, uh, physical exhaustion, mental exhaustion because they're strategizing to win the entire time, and emotional roller coasters as they make friends and betray them. Um, so in that, some rise to the occasion with inner strength and some falter. Some reach out and carry others, and some lose their moral bearings completely. This experience, not The Bachelorette or The Bachelor, this experience is actually more true to Ruth's story than a dating show. So today I'm going to help us see Ruth in a bit of a different light. We're going to ask God's Spirit to open our eyes to the ways we can experience him through her life. Uh, I'm going to try to shed some light on some aspects of Ruth that may have been downplayed or underestimated over the years. But mainly we're going to explore this Hebrew word hesed. Has anyone heard that term before? That Hebrew word? Okay, a few people. Um, this hesed, this concept, is displayed throughout the story of Ruth. Uh, and I'll relate that a little bit to my work as a family lawyer, but I want you to think about how it applies to your life and your relationships and the work that you do, the places that God has put you. So we're going to dig in. Are you ready? If anyone has their Bible or their app in front of you, I'll assume that you're looking at the scripture and not, you know, look, checking out Instagram while I'm talking. So as we heard in Ruth chapter 1, this man named Elimelech uh, from Bethlehem decides to take his wife Naomi and their sons to the country of Moab due to a famine in Israel. Moab is modern-day Jordan, the portion running right next to the Dead Sea. And as is often the case, Moab was named after a person, Moab. Uh, I should have made that a question, right? So who is Moab named after? There we go. Everyone gets one today. Um, anyone know who Moab's father was? Come on. Somebody knows it. Who was Moab's father? Think back. It's a tough one. Any guesses? Kevin? Kevin and I went to seminary together, so that's why I'm picking on him. <laughs> I'll save you. Um, Moab was actually a son of Lot. And Lot is, it was Abraham's brother who was not known for his virtue. Oh, Moab was also the son uh, conceived by incest with Lot's eldest daughter. So Moab was a place where Moses died being prevented by God from entering the, the promised land. The people of Moab worshipped the god Shemosh and at various times induced the Israelites to join them uh, in their sacrifices, particularly during the time of King Solomon, and that even included human sacrifices at times. When Moses was re-giving the law and the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy 23, he said this about the Moabites, no Moabite or any of their descendants can enter the assembly of the Lord, not even in the tenth generation. For they did not come to meet with you with bread and water on your way when you came out of Egypt. And they hired Balaam to pronounce a curse on you. However, the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam, but turned the curse into a blessing for you. Because the Lord your God loves you. Do not seek a treaty of friendship with them as long as you live. So that's Ruth's homeland. And that's the sordid history with the Israelites that stands as a backdrop for this incredible story about to unfold. 
Back to the story, Elimelech and his wife and son settle in Moab, then uh, Moab. Then Elimelech dies. His sons marry Moabite women, one of whom is Ruth. This would not have been looked at very kindly by pious or righteous Israelites. And then 10 years later, both sons die, leaving the three women alone. Now that's a strange story, strange beginning to a story in the Bible. One would have expected to hear about Elimelech or one of his sons in this patriarchal society, but instead, the men are killed off and the story continues with three women. You don't want to miss an important point. How long between Ruth's marriage to Malone and his death? Did anyone catch that when we were reading it? Ten years, that's right. And did she have any children? No children. In a patriarchal culture where having children, particularly sons, was the primary purpose of marriage and means of stability for the future, this must mean that Ruth was barren, or at least she would have thought she was and been considered barren even if it was her husband who was unable to have children. So she finds herself a widow, a barren woman, a childless Moabite. Naomi hears there are some good crops in the land of Judah again and decides to go back. Naomi and Ruth and Orpah set out on the journey and sometime along the way, Naomi feels bad about taking Ruth and Orpah from their home country. Perhaps she realizes how vulnerable they are and tells them to go back. She doesn't want these women to experience the bitter life that God has given her, childless and husbandless. Orpah leaves, but Ruth does not. And we hear those famous words read at many weddings, wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. We usually stop there, but she continues, wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. Did you read those words at your wedding? (laughs) No, I, I don't know about you, but I can't imagine saying these words to who? My mother in law. I love my mother-in-law, but I can't imagine saying these words to her, uh, let alone to my mother-in-law after my husband, her son, has passed away. Ruth finds herself a widow, a barren woman, a foreigner, an outsider, and rather than lose herself in her sorrow, she commits herself to a person who has no hold on her. She voluntarily chooses to demonstrate loyal love to Naomi, and this won't be the last time. Ruth clings to Naomi, just as Genesis 2 speaks of a husband clinging to his wife. But this is far more radical. She is demonstrating the type of love that lays down one's life for another. This is not because she is desperate or clingy. Um, it's, it's, It's her choosing the harder road. We speak a lot about healthy boundaries, and we need them. But the boundaries are meant to give us structure to love, not to give us an excuse not to love. And this is something Ruth understands. It's important to ask ourselves occasionally whether our attachment or devotion to someone has actually ever changed the way we live, the choices that we make. Now, we spoke earlier about how Ruth has been painted as this submissive, obedient one who's rescued by an older man, Boaz. Uh, But in chapter 1, we witness Ruth's fierce loyalty and love, disobeying Naomi's instructions for the sake of love. She does not submit to Naomi's instructions and return to her father's home, to the security of a new husband in her own culture. She decides to remain with 
Naomi, which is a risky journey that the two of them will take into another country with no supports and likely no prospects, since her status as a Moabite will not be welcomed in Judah. Now we move into chapter 2, and it is Ruth who comes up with a plan. Notice that again. She says to Naomi in, cha- in verse 2, Let me go out into the harvest fields to pick up all the stalks of grain left behind by anyone who's kind enough to let me do it. She goes out and she ends up in Boaz's field. Boaz notices her gleaning, gathering grain behind the harvesters. And the foreman says that she's a young woman from Moab, Moab who came back with Naomi. It's a small village, remember, so everyone knows everyone's business. At verse 7, the foreman says, She asked me this morning if she could gather grain behind the harvesters. She's been hard at work ever since. This is when Ruth's life and her fierce devotion start to have an impact not just on her grieving, broken-hearted mother-in-law, but on Boaz, a righteous Jew who is on the opposite side of the society, societal wrong as Ruth. Gleaning was Israelites' welfare system, a way for the poor and the widow, the orphan and the foreigner to sustain themselves by scavenging leftover grain from community fields. The Mosaic gleaning law in Leviticus and Deuteronomy required landowners to leave the corners and the edges of their field unharvested. After clearing the field, harvesters were not allowed to go back for the grain that they missed but they were to leave what remained for the foreigner and the fatherless and the widow. Hired male harvesters cut the grain. Female harvesters followed to gather the grain into bundles to be carted to the threshing floor. And once the harvesters were all finished, then gleaners could come and gather up what scraps remained. This was a shameful job in a shame-based culture. It was a public display of poverty. Subsistence, subsistence living very similar to eking out a survival today, recycling aluminum cans. For Naomi, who used to have status in Bethlehem, it would have been humiliating to have her daughter-in-law join the ranks of gleaners. Not only was Ruth humbling herself, even losing her dignity, but taking, by taking on such a job to support herself and her mother-in-law, she was also putting herself in danger. We should not minimize the serious threats uh, that unprotected women have historically faced. And both Naomi and Boaz underscore this. Boaz will tell his, his male workers not to lay a hand on her. And Naomi will tell Ruth to stay in Boaz's field because she may be harmed if she's in someone else's field. This is not a passive, timid woman, Ruth. Despite her own sorrow her own precarious situation, her own outsider status, and her own physical safety. She courageously steps out on behalf of Naomi, risking shame, assault, and continued poverty. Boaz himself is also a threat. He is described as a towering figure, a man of power, wealth, and privilege. The stark opposite of Ruth, who is likely wearing widow's clothes. Yet despite this, even before Boaz has entered the story, Ruth has already courageously asked the foreman if she can gather grain behind the harvesters. Many commentators believe that this was Ruth asking for much more than what the Mosaic gleaning laws dictated. She was not just asking if she could scavenge uh, for snippets of grain, like digging through the garbage bin behind a restaurant. She wanted to glean where there was fresh cut grain lying on the ground. Ruth lives on what theologian Carolyn Custis James calls the hungry side of the law. 
And the law looks very different from that point of view. Her proposal presses Boaz beyond the letter of the law to the spirit of the law. The letter of the law says, let them glean. The spirit of the law says, feed them. After a devastating famine, it could be a struggle to do anything beyond the minimum expected of of him. But because of what Boaz has heard of Ruth's loyalty to Naomi, and in response to her courageous initiative, Boaz not only keeps her from physical harm and allows her to glean from areas usually off limits, but he also gives her food and water and an abundance to take back to Naomi. He even instructs his harvesters to pull out stalks of grain from the bundles and put them in her path. Uh, so that she can glean even more. And she remains gleaning in the field throughout the barley harvest and into the wheat harvest. When Ruth comes home to Naomi with this abundance, Naomi had been previously, uh, Naomi who had previously been bitterly speaking about how God had emptied her, 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 her of everything, suddenly proclaimed, the Lord bless him. He has not stopped showing his kindness, or chesed, to both the living and dead. I understand the language here of the word he is quite ambiguous. So it's unclear whether she's talking about Boaz or about God himself when she says um, that he, that his kindness, he has shown, he has not stopped showing kindness to both the living and the dead. But we can confidently say both, right? God is showing his kindness through his image bearer, Boaz, who was inspired to do so through his image bearer, Ruth. There is more to Ruth's incredible story, like how she breaks cultural norms and basically proposes to Boaz, um, how she puts herself out there proclaiming in faith that she will provide an heir for Naomi when for all she knows she's completely barren, and how she inspires Boaz once again to look beyond the letter of the law to the spirit of the law when she interprets the kinsman-redeemer law, which leads to her marriage to Boaz. We can't get into all of that, uh, but the main and most critical thing for us to learn from Ruth's story today relates to this word hesed. It's H-E-S-E-D, if anyone wanted to write that down. Uh, The Hebrew word hesed is difficult to translate. No single word in English captures its meanings. Uh, Translators use words like kindness, loving kindness, loyalty, loyal love. In the majority of verses, it's translated as mercy. Hesed is one of the richest, most potent words in the Old Testament. Hebrew scholars tell us that hesed is a strong Hebrew word that sums up the ideal lifestyle for God's people. It's the way God intended human beings to live together since the beginning. The love your neighbor as yourself type of living. An active, selfless, sacrificial caring for one another that goes against our selfish natures. It's not a feeling or a mood. It's something people do for other people who have no claim on them. It's not driven by duty or obligation. They have the freedom to walk away from the need but they willingly pour themselves out for the good of someone else. Hesed is to love as God loves, an unfailing love. As it says in uh, Isaiah 54, though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love, or hesed, for you will not be shaken. 
God says to his people. The other part of Hesed is love in action, to intervene to help a loved one. Hesed is a love that is so enduring it persists beyond any sin or betrayal, to mend brokenness and graciously extend forgiveness. In Lamentations, we read, no one is cast off by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion. So great is his unfailing love, or so great is his Hesed. God uses the word to describe himself and he calls his people to it, such as in Micah 6.8, where we are called to act justly, love hesed, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. Hesed is displayed throughout the story of Ruth. There are no definitions. Instead, the author provides colorful pictures to show us what hesed looks like in people's lives. The words mentioned in three snapshots, although the book is soaked in it. We'll just briefly look at these three snapshots and, uh, and then close from there. In the first one, Naomi brings it up when she blesses her Moabite daughters-in-law and tries to send them home in Ruth chapter, eight, or chapter 1, verse 8. May the Lord show kindness, or has said to you, as you have shown to me and to your dead. Naomi, in fact, shows this said or unfailing love when she wishes this to her daughters-in-law rather than looking out for her own needs. But she points to their sacrificial love during the famine and the deaths of their husbands as an example of this deep, loyal love. The Israelites and us today are called to look at the example of two foreigners, two Moabite women, who are reflecting and living out the hesed, the unfailing love, the loving kindness of God. Perhaps in the same way today, God is calling us to look at those around us who we may consider to be on the margins, the outsider, the poor, the widow, who in fact are called to, that we are called to emulate them as they live out God's hesed or his unfailing love here on earth. Next, when Naomi sees Ruth loaded up with grain from her gleaning in Ruth chapter 2, verse 20, she exclaims, He has not stopped showing his kindness or has said to the living and the dead. Can we recognize God's love and devotion to us through the practical actions and generosity of others? A third snapshot of what Hesed looks like is talked about in chapter 3 of Ruth, when Ruth approaches Boaz on the threshing floor. We don't have time to dig into this fascinating part of the story uh, where Ruth does defy many cultural norms. Uh, Naomi gives her instructions and then tells her to wait, and Boaz will tell her what to do. But instead, she takes the initiative and calls Boaz to generously interpret the law and walk deeper into God's kindness. At Ruth chapter 3, verse 10, Boaz says, The Lord bless you, my daughter. This kindness, or hesed, is greater than that, you sh than that which you showed earlier. Ruth ultimately enters into God's blessing and becomes part of the lineage of King David and then Jesus himself. The women of Judah are drawn to worship God and exclaim that, that Ruth has been better to Naomi than seven sons. Now that's a radical statement in their culture. Seven being the symbol of completeness, and sons being the lifeline and the future of mother. Next week, you'll be looking at the life of Naomi, and you will see that she despairs because she faces much tragedy like Job, and is unsure if God's said, God's loving kindness, has dried up for her. This is a question that sooner or later, most of us face for ourselves or for someone we love. 
And the story of Ruth addresses this question, not by the voice of God speaking out from the heavens, as in Job, or by a dramatic vision, or by deep philosophizing, as in the book of Ecclesiastes, but by God's people engaged in simple yet extraordinary acts of said of God's loving kindness. In my everyday work as a family lawyer and as a family mediator, I see people facing grief and brokenness, uh, anger, disappointment every day. If you or someone you love has ever faced separation or divorce, you will know how deep the pain can cut and how prolonged the agony can feel. Hope is often lost. For Christians going through separation and divorce, it can feel that God's loving kindness has dried up. And the church often confirms this perception rather than reflecting the chesed of God, the constant, enduring, loving kindness of God. It's my prayer that the church will be, become a safer place for people walking through separation and divorce. That just as Ruth did for Naomi, people will covenant to walk beside and not abandon those who are heartbroken and feel as if God's fist is raised against them. I trust that you've already heard God's spirit prompting you through the life of Ruth to consider how when you are facing tragedy, you may look around and see God's has said embodied in the actions of others. Or perhaps uh, you're convicted to demonstrate this has said, this sacrificial, generous, unobligated care to others who are in despair. Even when you're in the depths of your own pain and, and facing difficulties like Ruth was. Hesed may be a simple act of kindness, or it may be a radical devotion. It may be to a stranger or someone in your faith community. Or it may be to your spouse or family member, which is sometimes the most difficult place to demonstrate it. Wherever Hesed is demonstrated, it has the power to heal, to renew faith to inspire generosity, and to transform the lives of both those who give it and those who receive it. So let's just take a moment of quiet uh, to hear from God's Spirit as he reminds us of his deep loving kindness and speaks to us about where he may be calling us, each one of us, to live out his said. And then I'll close in prayer. Lord, thank you for your great love, your loving kindness, your mercy, your chesed that carries us even in the darkest of nights. And God, thank you that when you are silent, when your, when your kindness, when your chesed appears to have run out due to the circumstances of our lives, tragedy, loss, sorrow, broken relationships, illness, death, that you call your people to live it out to those around us as image bearers of who you are. Lord, give us the strength and compassion to respond when your spirit is calling us to care sacrificially for another beyond obligation. And when we face troubles, Lord, as, as Ruth did, 
Give us the endurance and the integrity to rise above despair by living in and through and out of your great mercy. Amen.